For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Ah, it's Hertel Wednesday, January the 12th, year of our Lord 2022. So glad you're with us today. Plenty going on. M. Carpenter's going to join us, going to talk a little true crime with our lawyer friend, uh, going to talk a little bit about the exodus of Democratic Congress critters, uh, turn down the noise on that, going to talk some COVID, going to talk some other things as well in the program, including a fun little nugget to end the show about goldfish driving. Yes, really. That's not a metaphor for your blind aunt that took the car out that's not supposed to drive. They literally let a goldfish drive. But first, let's talk about something a little more pertinent. Uh, running theme on the show, turning down the noise of the news cycle. Uh, AP Today, new poll. Inflation up, virus down as priorities in a new poll. Uh, heading into the crucial midterm election year, the AP says the top political concerns of Americans are shifting in ways that suggest Democrats face considerable challenges to maintain their control of Congress. A poll from the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, shows that the management of the coronavirus pandemic, once an issue that strongly favored President Joe Biden and his fellow Democrats, is beginning to recede in the minds of Americans. COVID-19 is increasingly overshadowed by concerns about the economy and personal finances, particularly inflation, which are topics that could lift Republicans. Just 37% of Americans named the virus as one of their top five priorities for the government to work on in 2022, compared to 53% who said it was a leading priority at the same time a year ago. The economy outpaced the pandemic in the open-ended questions with 68% of respondents mentioning it in some way as top 2022 concern. A similar percentage said that the same last year, but mentions of inflation are much higher, 14% higher this year, compared with less than 1% last year. Consumer prices jumped 6.8% for the 12th month ending in November, a nearly four-decade high. Meanwhile, roughly twice as many Americans now mention their household finances, namely the cost of living. As a governmental priority, 24% versus 12% last year. The poll was conducted in early December when worries about the vaccine were rising the virus, excuse me, were rising as Omicron took hold across the country. But before it sparked record caseloads, overwhelming test sites and hospitals and upended holiday travel, still 
It recently follow-up interviews with participants, including self-identified Democrats. Many say those developments didn't shake their views. And there's a nice large graphic here in the AP. COVID at 37%, the economy at 68%. Uh, the other highly ranked ones are immigration, other health care, meaning non-COVID health care issues, politics, personal finance, cost of living, gun issues, uh, climate change in the environment, foreign policy. These are all in the 20s now. Education is at 19%, and racism and racial equality is down at 15%. That sentiment reflects the challenge for Democrats at the onset of the election year. The party won the White House in control of Congress in 2020 with pledges to manage the pandemic more competently than the Trump administration. Let's stop right here for a second. Joe Biden didn't promise to manage it more competently. He openly and braggedly said he was going to end it. That was foolish because he has very little control over it. But that's what he said. He said, we're going to crush the virus. We're going to end the virus. He used very big rhetoric about what he was going to do to the virus compared to the implied incompetence of Donald Trump, his predecessor. And now they're walking it back. That's just the reality of where we're at on this. Moving back to the piece, administration officials acknowledge that the public is growing increasingly weary of COVID-19. Pandemic fatigue is real, and all of us feel it at some point. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy said in an interview, as a doctor, I certainly seen it with my patients over the years. When you get tired and beaten down by health problems, whether it's a personal health problem or a broader public health challenge, it can lead to disengagement. The White House says COVID-19's waning as a preeminent concern actually underscores its success in rolling out preventative measures, including vaccines. It argues the economic genders now are exacerbated by the pandemic that will eventually ease still with Democrats likely struggling to campaign on the idea that they've now defeated the virus. The other issues gaining attention among voters pose more immediate political headaches. The article continues, but we've got what we need here. Folks, the truth is the president of the United States cannot control a virus. He can promote policies. He can set an agenda. He can lead on things. But the president never had any control over a virus. Neither did the last one. Now, both men, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, did some things for the virus and made a lot of mistakes. Both of them did. We did get the vaccines under President Trump. That's a good thing. That was good for him. He was horrific in his messaging and trying to lay out the things that needed to be done public health wise. Joe Biden came into office promising to crush this virus and his administration at best has been horrible on messaging. They can't stay on it. They don't know how to do it consistently. And they've had some obstacles. They've had two major variants in Delta and Omicron, and there's not a lot they can do about it. But the problem is when you set yourself up as being the people that are going to crush something that you have no ability to crush, you always wind up looking silly. It was their own fault. They needed the weapon and the cudgel to win the election. I understand that. And they want to lead and say, we're going to handle the virus. But they've been in office for a year now, and the results are the results. The testing situation is inexcusable. That also goes back to the last administration, but this administration hasn't done very much about it either. In fact, they've made it worse with this scheme of going through the postal service instead of just getting it in the hands of people that need it. The problem with Omicron and the problem with Delta and the problem with the coronavirus in general is there's no way to hide what you did with it. You can't wish it away. It's going to do what it wants to do, and there's not a lot we can do to stop it. We can have vaccines and things like that, but it's still a virus. It doesn't care. It doesn't have political ambitions. It doesn't have Q ratings and poll numbers. It just does what it does, which is try to replicate and mutate all it can. 
our leaders, including our president, Biden, and his predecessor, Donald Trump, have to try to use these things for political means. We know that we're all grownups, we're all adults. The problem is this isn't a political problem. It's causing political problems, but it's a public health issue. And it's not going to go away just because the politics say so, just because the campaign promise said so. The Biden administration is learning the hard way that these viruses don't care and you can't control them. And you should have never said that you could to start with or at least implied it in your wordy word trying to get office. Again, we've said it over and over again on this program. A little humility would have went a long way. I understand that doesn't play well to fundraising and numbers, but that's the truth. The administration seems to be latently learning that it needs to have some humility and say, we're all going to have to learn how to live with this thing. And that seems to be the attack they're taking. They're going to get a lot of criticism for that. And they deserve it. It's their own fault. I don't care what political party you are. Everybody could have done better with this thing. Everybody can do better going forward. And it's better for everybody to just admit that now and not try to slam it into ongoing political issues. We're going into an election year. COVID's going to be, again, a political issue. It just is. That's how the world works. But we can do better of it, and we can demand better of it. And apparently, there's enough pressure on the White House and the polling numbers they're seeing to understand that they better do something about the economy, because it's still the economy, stupid. And people are shook on the economy, even while they're still dealing with COVID-19. More Hertel coming up right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Welcome back to Her Tell. We know 2022 is an election year. We know the midterms are going to be one of the dominant uh, topics of discussion in news and politics and culture for almost all of this year since the election will be in November and, God forbid, probably longer if we have any runoffs or anything like that. But there is a narrative forming, uh, and it's one we need to talk about, one we need to turn down the noise on a little bit. Uh, There's a headline, uh, this particular representative, Ed Perlmuter, Uh, who is a representative out of Colorado, becomes the 26th House Democrat to announce he will not seek re-election. Now, that number by itself sounds big. 26 of them are not going to run for re-election. There's a couple things that go into this, despite the narratives. Uh, One is, yes, it is expected that unless they shoot themselves in the foot, which you can never discount because we are talking about the Republican Party here. They have an ability to snatch uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, and they may do so. But cyclically, historically, uh, the Republicans should have a very good year in 2022 unless they completely just have self-inflicted gunshot wounds and destroy it for themselves. Uh, midterm elections against the sitting president, especially one with the trifecta of power, having the House, the Senate and the White House for one party, usually don't do real well. Usually there's a correction. Um, So it is not unusual to think that the Democratic Party is kind of battening down the hatches and understanding they're going to lose seats. This is also a redistricting year. Uh, We're going to be talking about that on the program soon. We've already talked about it with some other folks. Uh, We'll get into that at another time. Uh, Redistricting, gerrymandering, one person's redistricting is another person's gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is bad. Redistricting is good. It depends on which side you're on. It's a messy issue. We're going to talk about it a lot this year, but let's set that aside for just a second. 
there is some redistricting involved here because some of these districts are getting changed. That changes the composite, changes the ability of these people to fundraise and run in them. Some of these uh, representatives just don't want to fool with the hassle of running in a new district or in a redrawn district. That's understandable. Uh, some of them have been, of course, because there are partisan politics involved. Uh, they're being drawn out of their district, quote unquote. Uh, their district has changed from leaning one way to leaning another way, or it changes their ability to run in it. So some of that is going on. Uh, there is also, though, something that is just on a practical matter. A lot of these representatives just don't want to fool around with being in the minority. Uh, being a member of Congress is a bit of a grind. Now, let's understand we're not talking about factory work and dick digging here. These are still highly pampered people that live privileged lives. However, for folks in that stratosphere who have other interests going on, unless they're planning on making a 20 or 30 year career out of Congress. If you're a couple terms or at your, you're at the end of your term or you've been there a few years and frustrated, being in the minority is no fun. You don't have a lot of power. You're always fighting uphill. You're not getting a lot of things done. That's a major dynamic to what's going on right now. A lot of these reps, uh, Representative Perlmuter, for example, here is 68. He probably has some other things he wants to do at this stage of his life. And he just says, heck with it. It ain't worth it. I'm going to go do something fun because this is going to be a madhouse for two, three years. Remember, too, our members of Congress run uh, for reelection every two years, which means really they're constantly running without almost any respite at all. Uh, we were kind of joking. We talked all last year about when the Biden administration came into office, how small the window is. One of the reasons that window is so small is because the House has to run for election every two years, which means they're running 18 months out of those two years. They're seeking office or just getting settled into office. You've only got about a six to nine month window where they actually legislate. We just saw this with quite clear intent in 2021, where Build Back Better struggled. The infrastructure package took almost all year. Uh, we're seeing it again with voting rights and things like this. It's hard to pass legislation in a highly polarized Congress, in a highly split Congress. And a lot of these Congress critters are just deciding it ain't worth it. They have more lucrative opportunities elsewhere, and they're throwing up their hands. So this number is going to go up. It's 26 right now. Uh, Democratic members that are not seeking re-election. They call it retiring for some weird reason. I don't really like that term, uh, but uh, things are changing in the Congress. It looks like the Republicans are going to have a good year in 2022, and quite a few of the Democratic friends, they just don't want to fool with it. So yes, there's an accident. Yes, there's a story there, but keep it in perspective. There's historical and cyclical forces at work here beyond just the fact that the Republicans are expected to do well in 2022. We're going to cover this story all year long. It's going to be a dominated story. We always want to keep perspective on it. We want to keep the bigger picture view of it and not just get wrapped up in the horse race aspect of it because we'll lose our perspective on the goings on of our Congress critters up in D.C. Uh, we give them a very hard time but they do have a job to do and we need to hold them accountable and we need to pay attention to what they're doing. More Hertel right after this. Uh, Hertel Show, welcome back. We're thrilled to have M. Carpenter, one of our regular with us. Usually have her on for legal news and things like that, speaking lawyery things and big words that we don't understand and she has to explain to us. We're going to have a little bit more fun because her other passion is true crime stuff and M, we are seem to really be in a renaissance period with true crime stuff don't we 
Yes. Yep. It's great to be a, a true crime, true crime fan these days. Some of the ones that really jump out at you, because obviously there's all kinds of documentaries on the streaming services. Everybody has their favorite podcast, things like this. But you, you are also an attorney. Uh, you've been a prosecutor. You've actually investigated crimes. You know more about this than the average viewer does. Which ones really jump out at you as as quality true crime programs? I. I prefer podcasts mostly these days. It fits in better with my time because I can listen while I'm cleaning or cooking. And um, there are a few good ones. Depends on your your uh, your your view of things. A lot of people don't want to have comedy <laughs> mixed in with their true crime. They find it disrespectful, and that's understandable. But there are a few that are sort of funny podcasts that I enjoy. Um, my favorite murder is one of them. Another that I enjoy is uh, called Sinisterhood. Uh, one of the hosts of Sinisterhood is is also an attorney, and she's also a stand up comedian. Her and her co host. So there's some some comedy in there, but uh, she's also knowledgeable and she does a good job of explaining quirks in the law that a lot of podcasts don't have the knowledge to uh, to explain. So they just kind of skirt around them or say, "What's up with that?" or "Why is that?" Why are they doing that? Where she can can explain that, um, but there's a little humor in there, and, and I like that. Another one, one of the first podcasts of crime, of true crime that I listened to is called Generation Y W H Y, and it's not so much funny as serious, but they're very respectful, um, and uh, they do a good job of finding the the real facts of the case and not just the media speculation. They do their own research, so I prefer those. Um, on TV, you know, Forensic Files is is a longtime favorite of mine. Uh, it seems to always be on. And I always joke when I go travel somewhere, if I'm alone in a hotel room, I can turn my TV on at any time and, and find Forensic Files. And so uh, that's one of my, my favorite go-tos. And there's some good sort of one-off miniseries that come up on Netflix that are worth watching. And it really runs the gamut from complete exploitive, exploitive crap to good quality um, shows. So I'll watch any of it really. <laughs> well, with that high standard in mind, um, <laughs> but what is it about true crime? Cause we've always had a fascination with it uh, as, just as human beings. Of course, with technology now, we can all kind of get a la carte, whatever we want. What is it about true crime that always fascinates people so much? What is it that um, do you think? Obviously, you're a big fan of the genre, but when you try to discuss this with other people that maybe aren't a fan of it, what, what do you think it is about the human experience that they just get sucked into these true crime stories? I think it fascinates a lot of people to realize just how terrible one person can be to another. It, it, it's outside of most of our experience to, to imagine uh, the terrible things that happen to people. And so I think it's just sort of the curiosity of people who are among us, but so unlike us. Um, my true crime interest goes back to my childhood. And I, re I remember hearing about Ted Bundy, um, and this was when I was maybe five or six years old because, you know, that was the early 80s. Right. So but I remember hearing about it. I don't know if my mom was talking about it or 
if I had read about it because I did read newspapers and things even at that age because I was a weird child. Uh, But I recall, it's very cringy to think about now, but I remember my first grade teacher asking all of us in the class if we would, what we would do to make the world a better place. What change would we make in the world? And when it was my turn, I said, um, executing Ted Bundy, which was probably an, an odd thing for my teacher to hear out of her first grader. So my fascination goes way back. Um, and so I don't really know what started it other than just maybe the same thing where people enjoy scary movies, something that scares them, just that these are real life monsters and real life bad guys. Yeah. Talking to M. Carpenter, who is a real life attorney, but likes to uh, stay at a Holiday Inn last night and solve crimes through her TV, like just about (laughs) everybody else these days. Um, We've talked about, and it's been kind of a thing for the last, oh, I guess 15 years or so, but uh, attorneys and legal experts have talked about talked about the CSI effect, how that is affected when they go to right. pool jur- juries and things like this, that um, sometimes these shows can have a, a negative effect because they think, well, everything can be solved by DNA or you always have a, you know, a clear cut motive, these sorts of things. Do you think this is a positive or a negative, this current wave of true crime? Do you think it's improving? Uh, overall knowledge of the criminal justice process, or do you think it's hurting? I think it's improving in some ways. I do. I think that people are becoming more educated. Now, as an attorney, depending on which side of the courtroom you're on and the strength of your case, an educated jury is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, If you have a a weak case as a prosecutor, a smart jury is not a good thing for you. Um, But the CSI effect, that's definitely real. You know, people are waiting for that bombshell DNA testimony, the expert to come on and and testify that the defendant's DNA was at the scene. And that happens quite a bit, uh, but it doesn't happen in every case. So it can be definitely be a harmful. The jury has to understand that lack of DNA evidence does not mean this person uh, is not guilty. Likewise, the presence of their DNA, depending on circumstances, doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know, um, my DNA would be expected to be in my husband's car. So if he would turn up dead <laughs> and, and they search the car, yeah, sure. They're going to find my DNA. That doesn't, doesn't prove anything. So it's all in, in perspective, you know, every situation it's up to the attorneys to do the, a good job of, of explaining that and arguing that to a jury. Yeah. Talking to him, Carpenter, uh, let's take something that, you know, uh, really well, Some of these cases go viral. Um, We've talked about uh, the cases that have shown up on viral podcasts or on viral shows, and then they they debate, you know, innocence or guilt or these things. And then there's ones like you've tried to cover, like the Clarksburg VA serial killer uh, that doesn't seem to get any traction at all, even though it seems to be an amazing story. Talk about it from your end as a content creator, because you're also a writer. You're not just an attorney. You're a senior editor at Ordinary Times. You do great writing every week. Talk about it from that end of when you get a true crime story that needs to be told like this VA one, and it just doesn't seem to get the traction you think it should. Talk about it from that angle. Sure. I think there's uh, a a lot of it has to do with victimology, which is a real word used by criminologists. The type of victim has a lot to do with how much coverage case gets. Unfortunately, we saw that, you know, over the summer with with Gabby Petito, um, 
which was contrasted beautifully on your show with Molly McCluskey talking about the indigenous women and indigenous people that have gone missing that and have not been covered by our media. So, um, and in the, the VA case, you know, it was elderly men, um, you know, they were some of them nearing, probably nearing the end of their lives. And so there's sort of a, I don't want to say meh, but that's kind of what some people maybe don't have interest in that because it's sort of, um, you know, it's not a, a young, attractive person with their entire life ahead of them that, you know, something you don't expect to have, a life you don't expect to end so soon. So it could be part of it. Um, and then, of course, being an angel of death is type of killer. That's a complete own uh, category in and of itself that is not necessarily as interesting to some people because it lacks the blood and gore. Uh, I find it very interesting, the contrast between a caregiver and um, the exact opposite of that, becoming a murderer. So it, I think that the victim has a lot to do with it. Sometimes the perpetrator, you know, there's a lot of fascination with the typical serial killer, the, you know, out on the street, um, stranger danger type of serial killer that is actually pretty rare, despite all of the publicity that they get. Those are um, obviously they get a lot of attention. They, I think they speak to a lot of fear that uh, especially young women have. And you know, women are, I, I believe, I'm correct in saying the majority of true crime fans by a lot. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I think it, it just depends. It's it's the things that capture our imagination because they, we can relate to them, um, and maybe a lot of us can't relate to eighty year old men in a veterans hospital, or we don't relate to or know much about indigenous people. We do know, you know, uh, the people who look like us or the people we see every day around us in our neighborhoods and our towns. And so, when something happens to to someone that we relate to, I think we pay more attention. Yeah, talking to Ann Carpenter about some true crime. We're going to get into some of those things with her as we continue on her tell right after this. back with M. Carpenter, our legal eagle. She's usually here to talk about uh, the Supreme Court or a past law or something like that. But today we're talking about her personal passion for true crime and uh, the gory details, as it were. Uh, why is it you mentioned that women are predominantly kind of the demographic for a lot of this? Why is it? It's not just um, uh, the stories, obviously. Uh, it's not just, you know, a demographic when they develop the TV series for these things. What do you think it is? Uh, you is one. I isn't, obviously. What is it about women and the true crime genre, do you think? I think a lot of it has to do with uh, being protective of oneself. You, I, I think there's a feeling that if we know more about it, if we know what's out there, we can protect ourselves from it. And I think that might be part of it um, for me anyway. I guess I can only speak for myself, but I always feel empowered by knowledge. The more I know, uh, the better I feel, the safer I feel. It may be a false sense of security, but to me, knowing about these things, knowing they're out there, being aware of them, 
makes me feel like I can do more to keep myself safe. Um, and I can't speak for everyone, but that's part of it for me. And part of it is just morbid fascination, uh, as I spoke about before, just knowing what can actually happen, you know, um, the fascination of what a person is able and capable of doing to someone else that I know that I could never fathom doing just, um, it's a, it's probably a combination of those things, but I I think that, you know, women just want to know, um, well, what situations can I avoid or what can I do to, to not fall prey? And there's a danger in that because I think, uh, you know, serial killers, for example, there's a lot of serial killers who have preyed on sex workers. And so, you know, women might think, well, I'm not a homeless drug addicted sex worker, so I'm not in danger. Um, so I think, that's part of it is trying to separate ourselves from the type of person who falls victim to these things. Um, again, that would be a false sense of security. Obviously, it can happen to anyone. So uh, but that's my my theory on on why women in particular are drawn to it. What about the ongoing online theory slash joke that all uh, true crime watching by women, especially women that are in a relationship, is really just planning ahead and research? <laughs> no comment. I'm sure your husband will be thrilled to know that. Uh, M. Carpenter joining us. You, you're somewhat outside of the system, even though you're an attorney, you've been a prosecutor, you've done these kind of cases, but you've also been a writer. You're a content creator now. You do shows like mine. What would you tell somebody that has one of these true crime stories or they know of some kind of a true crime stories and they want to try to get it some traction and you know firsthand because you've had to both defend and prosecute these cases where the system sometimes don't listen to folks. How would you tell them to use this new technology and use the ability of these hosts and all these online sleuths and these sorts of things to try to get their story out? Well, I would say just that, just to get your story out however you can. Put it on your own blog. Uh, submit it to other blogs. Submit it to Ordinary-Times. Um, we, you know, we can get it out there. Social media is a big way. There are a lot of podcasters who ask for recommendations of stories they should cover. And they sometimes, uh, some specifically will look for lesser known stories. There's a really good podcast called The Fall Line. And it focuses on little known cases in the southern, southeastern United States. Some in your area there, North Carolina, they've done series on. Um, So you know, you can tweet at your favorite podcasters or go to their web pages. They may have a submission button. You can put it in there. Um, and especially if you've already written it up, if you've already created an article or something that the podcaster can look at and get the details of. And, and if you're comfortable doing so, volunteer to be their guest to talk about the case, depending on your level of knowledge. So there are several ways. And I think just, you know, using social media to your advantage and being persistent is the best way to go. All right. I'm, I'm going to give you the time to do this because I know you've just been chomping at the bit to do it, but you, you have to explain to us because some of us don't understand it. What in the world a murder Reno is. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's the, the first podcast I mentioned, which is called my favorite murder. Um, probably it's was my favorite for a long time. I um, even went to watch it live, but the fans of the murder of uh, my favorite murder podcast are called the murderinos. Um, and then we all have, there are several, probably hundreds of Facebook groups of murderinos of various stripes. There's 
um, the, the Purdorinos, those are cat owners. Uh, there's Mountain Murderinos, West Virginia-based, um, my favorite murder fans. I'm in that group as well. And my personal favorite is the Lawyerinos, of which I am a member in good standing as the, the legal-minded or legal profession fans of the show. Um, that that's my my main group so we're just a community of true true crime fans who happen to enjoy that one particular podcast uh if you were talking to somebody who was trying just as a way to kind of wrap up our time with M. carpenter today uh what's kind of the entry drug into true crime i know people like the detective shows on tv you mentioned forensic files which is kind of a long-standing one uh what, what would you say the good gateway drug for folks looking to get into the genre is well, I think that um, those the true crime documentaries like Forensic Files and, and Cold Case, things like that, uh, if you can get it, the old City Confidential, those were really good. Those are, they're not all, you know, necessarily serial killers. There's a lot of just small town crime that is an interesting story that you can get into. So I would start there. And then, you know, if you have a long drive or a boring cleaning or cooking chore coming up, you know, pop one on your podcast. There's a million of them. Just pick one and, and go with it. I think that you can't go wrong. Throw a rock. <laughs> and that's Tim Carpenter with us today on Herd Tell, ma'am. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, our interview with Morgan Stevens on Monday's program, and you can catch that on the both the YouTube page and on all the podcasts if you want to go back and watch it in its entirety, uh, really struck a nerve. It's the most watched, most shared, most commented episode we've ever done. Uh, we knew it was a powerful story when we presented it, but the feedback has been amazing. We got message after message from folks responding to it uh, with very personal things that I wish we could share, but we can't. Uh, people that really connected with Morgan's story. So by popular demand, uh, we're going to play another clip from that show. And we want you to hear it. We want you to enjoy it. We want you to find it. Uh, this is powerful stuff. It's an important topic. Uh, Heard Tell Show, Morgan Steffens on the Monday episode. Here's a quick uh, clip from it. Yeah. And then you had the real fun and dignity. I know you talked about that you had been covering it at work and then you had the indignity of going to the emergency room and having the network you work for reference that, Hey, have you watched the show about COVID symptoms? Maybe this is what's wrong with you. Yeah. It, and you know, I debated on whether or not I, I was going to include that in the piece because being a CNN employee, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want my colleagues to think that like, you know, I was, I, I was, saying anything negative about, about them and their work, because really we've been doing excellent work on covering something that's unprecedented. Um, but it was very strange because it almost felt, it was almost one of those moments where I'm like, are, are you kidding me? Like I, I work for this, for this news network. I know that we are only going by what the experts are saying, and you're supposed to be the experts. 
And so it left me in this place of like, okay, now I definitely know I'm in no man's land, right? I am, I am on an island. Um, and that, that interaction kind of set the stage for what was going to unfold um, between me and the medical est- establishment, I suppose, if you want to say, um, the next few months. Yeah. And we're going to dig into that with Morgan Stephens as we continue. Uh, what that medical establishment did, more importantly, what it didn't do. Uh, we're also going to talk about not just the physical effects, but the mental health effects that she struggled with. And then we're going to talk about her recent work on COVID that took her very far abroad trying to look for answers. So more with Morgan Stevens right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing with Morgan Stevens, this incredible story of long COVID that she is telling from firsthand experience. Uh, you called it no man's land. That sounds like a really good way to describe it because, like you said, uh, when the experts don't know either, uh, I've always told people from my own health thing, there's nothing scarier than a doctor looking at you and you know they don't know what to say. Um, that's, a, that's a humbling moment in life. Uh, you went through a very long process of just kind of being fending for your own and caring for your own with just you and your family. Uh, and that went on for quite a while, didn't it? Yes, it did. It felt like it went on for about three months, but it felt like an eternity. Some good news here, not to make it all negative, but uh, the power of modern technology in amongst this, though, you did uh, find some help. You found online community like a lot of us do. You used um, some social media and you found other people. Uh, this is something that has been pandemic wide for a lot of reasons, but especially for health patients, uh, folks that were sick and shut in. We used to call them back in the day at church, right? The sick and shut in. Um, but this really was a lifeline to you, wasn't it? It was absolutely a lifeline. There's four things that kept me alive during that time. It was my mom, my dad, my husband, and my support group. And I remember, you know, there were times where my my, my family they were so devastated and kind of experiencing the trauma with me. And so they were processing it too. So having body politic, um, you know, it's a a support group that the platform is used through Slack. And so it's private, you have to be admitted to it. And so, you know, there's different channels for different symptoms. Like there's a neurological channel, there's a need to vent channel, there's a mental health channel. And so within those channels, people are kind of posting their own struggles or mentioning, hey, did you see this new study that came out? And and there was not only this exchange of medical information um, through medical journals, recent research that had come out, but there was also something really special that took place is they actually started hosting a Zoom group. And that's really when things started to change for me, because as as wonderful as it was to have that resource when I was sick early on, I didn't hop into the Zoom group until I'd say early January. And my symptoms have been pretty bad the whole month of December. And, you know, hearing other real human voices on the other side um, and coming to a place essentially with strangers in such a vulnerable place in my life, the most vulnerable I think I've ever been 
um, and immediately having them embrace me. And, you know, a lot of these people were first waivers that were on this, this, this live zoom group. And I'm so grateful. I mean, they had nobody, right. They had nobody telling them it's going to be okay when they were going through all of this, but they were able to tell me that they were able to say, you know, at one point I had, I had shared with them that I was having some kind of scary thoughts. Um, you know, I shared in my piece that I had experienced some suicidal ideation and it, it was, it was really hard. Um, for a good two months, it was really hard. It was a fight. And I remember sharing that with them and immediately they started telling me you're not alone early on for me. I had those thoughts. I, you know, they shared their stories with me. They made me feel like, yes, I wasn't alone in it, but also they, they, provided the sense that it was going to get better. And no one else at that time could do that. Not even my family, as as pivotal as they were in my recovery, they couldn't play that role because they were in it with me. The people and the, the dear friends now that I, 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 they are dear, dear friends. They were able to provide that for me in a time when no one else could, not my doctors, not my family, not, um, my industry. And I will never forget that. Yeah. And I've been pretty open with my own experiences with healthcare and how that triggered some mental health stuff with myself. I don't know that folks that haven't been chronically ill or had serious illness, just try to explain to them for a minute, because when you're sick, like really sick, like bed fast type sick, you have nothing to do but think. And you can only stare at the ceiling so much and you can only whatever your physical ailment so much. And inevitably with people in long-term care, we've got all the studies in the world and COVID's probably going to prove to be the same. When, when you're just physically spent, uh, your, your mind is susceptible. Um, just talk to people for a minute because people that maybe haven't been chronically ill may not understand. I, I mean, I, I know I got to where I just couldn't stand seeing the walls anymore. And your world gets so small, it gets dangerous, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so setting aside the physical changes that, was, that happened in my brain, um, let's just talk the, the, uh, the circumstance, right? Being sick that long and not having any answers after months, um, it is incredibly, incredibly isolating. It's also, when you don't know if you're going to get better or if you're going to, de to deteriorate until you can't make decisions for yourself, you go to a dark place because you start to think about quality of life and you also, for me, I didn't want to one, be a burden on my family. If it was a situation where I was unable to care for myself, I, I didn't improve and I couldn't function independently Two, I didn't want to live that way. I didn't want to not be what made me who I was. I lost my intellect. I lost my personality. 
I lost my ability. My, I had no appetite, my ability to take a walk, my ability to communicate all of these things that bring joy to our lives that was diminished. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. You know, we always try to end on a lighter note or a happier note. This is a little bit of a goofy scientific note, but I think it's interesting. Um, quoting from the Washington Post, Israeli researchers have taught a goldfish how to drive. According to a study that offers new insights into animals' ability to navigate, even when they're literally fish out of water. For the study published in the peer-reviewed journal Behavioral Brain Research, the goldfish were trained to use a wheeled platform dubbed a fish operating vehicle. The FOV, if you will, could be driven and have its course changed in reaction to a fish's movement inside a water tank mounted on the platform. Their task was to drive, that's in air quotes, the robotic vehicle towards a target that could be observed through the walls of the fish tank. The vehicle was fitted with LIDAR, short for light detection and ranging. Uh, that's the same stuff that's on your car that does the lane detection and swerving and all that fun stuff. A remote sensing technology that uses lasers to collect data on its ground location and the fish's location within the tank. The researchers from Ben-Gurion University found the fish were able to move the FOV around unfamiliar environments while reaching the target, quote, regardless of their starting point, all while avoiding dead ends and correcting locational inaccuracies. The goldfish in the tank were placed in a test arena and tasked with driving towards a target. Upon successfully hitting the target, they received a food pellet afterwards. The scientists said that after a few days of training, the fish were able to navigate past obstacles such as walls while eluding efforts to trick them with false targets. Quote, this study hints that the navigational ability is universal rather than specific to the environment. It shows that goldfish have the cognitive ability to learn a complex task in an environment completely unlike the one they have evolved in. The Israeli FOV isn't the world's first fish-driven car. Now, we all know if you're my age or younger from the Disney movies, that was Mr. Lipid, but I digress. In 2014, a design lab in the Netherlands mounted a fish tank on a vehicle which came with a webcam. The camera was able to follow the fish and translate their movements into directions for the go-kart. A video demonstrated the prototype showed the vehicle moving in spurts as the fish swam from one side of the tank to the other. Driving experiments have also undertaken using other animals, including rats and reportedly dogs. Navigation is a critical ability for animal survival, and the Israeli researchers say showing that a fish has the cognitive ability to navigate outside of its natural environment, quote, hints at universality in a space is represented across these environments. Driving fish, you can see the video. It's been viral. I actually first saw it on Twitter. This is up at the Washington Post. They have an in-depth little, it looks like a platform built out of an erector set with a couple wheels on it. And it has a little camera on it, like you see on other autonomous things. And there's a fish in a fish tank, happily swimming along, driving, which makes him better than most of the drivers in my town. But that's another Herd Tell episode for another day. And that'll do it for this episode of her tarot. Uh, we so greatly appreciate you watching on the YouTube, on the Facebook feed for the Big Talker FM station, uh, listening on the podcasting platforms. Uh, the episode we did with Morgan Stevens is the highest watched, listened, and shared and responded to episode we've ever done. That was the one we did for Monday. Uh, cannot thank you all enough. The messages, especially the private ones that I can't share, uh, was amazing. 
We appreciate those responses. Make sure you're staying in touch with us. Follow us on social media. Um, all of our guests, we always put the little lower third graphic there with their Twitter handle on there. Make sure you're following them. Uh, seek out their stuff when they're writing or commentating. Uh, my Twitter handle is always in the, the intro to the segments at four for the fire. The show's Twitter handle um, is at her tell show on the Twitter. You can also email us uh, her tell show at gmail.com. Drop us a line, ask us a question, tell us a topic you want to review, review us and what we talked about or what a guest talked about. We'd love to hear from you. Keep your bearing, be nice about it. We might even put it on the show and respond to you in that way wherever you're getting the program if you have the option to leave a comment or a rating that's a really big deal for us because that lets other people know our program is worth checking out you want to do a little extra help uh spend that extra click or two and share us on your social media every platform that you watch this on has a share option do that put us on your social media let people know about her tell uh, let them know that there is a place where we're turning down the noise and getting the good information so we can discern our times, trying to make the world a little better place, one good discussion at a time. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope this finds you well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Hurtell. All the music on Hurtell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.